A vegan superhero is a new breed of athlete. Stronger, healthier, and driven by purpose. Vegan superheroes wage war against society's status quo and win. Vegan superheroes battle the forces of evil that profit from the suffering of others. Vegan superheroes take a stand for what they believe in and prove the haters wrong. If you ask the meatheads and clueless fitness gurus, they'll tell you that what we're doing is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. Vegan superheroes inspire change, spread compassion, challenge the status quo, and fuel the revolution. Our mission is to help you become a vegan superhero. Welcome to the Vegan Gym Podcast. Hey, what's going on? My name is Leif Farneson, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. We have Dr. Nikki Davis, who is a rocket scientist turned board-certified medical doctor who specializes in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Her passion is to educate others on how to prevent and reverse chronic disease through a whole food, plant-based diet. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Leif. It's so nice to meet you. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. Awesome. So I know that you transitioned from a mechanical engineer to uh, heading into the medical field. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of that transition and how your whole journey into um, kind of lifestyle medicine really began? Absolutely. Uh, You know, my story of going not only plant-based, but also becoming a plant-based doctor is a little bit different than I would say others. Um, you know, for the most part, what I'll hear is people become a doctor or become a, some sort of a healthcare provider. And then they start learning about the research that's been done about how healthy a whole food plant-based diet can be and start changing their career and incorporating more lifestyle medicine into their career. Whereas I did it kind of the opposite Uh, At about the age of 13, I started getting rid of animal products in my diet because I just didn't feel like it was healthy. And it took me many, many years to finally go from basically not eating red meat to not eating poultry to not eating fish. You know, this happened from the age of 13 over my 20s and 30s uh, to where finally learning about the health benefits of a whole food plant-based diet was something that it took me until my 30s to really get to that point. Uh, But in the meantime, like you mentioned, I was, as I was getting into college, trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. Now, as a kid, I was always excited about inventing things and, um, you know, just coming up with new ideas for things. I was always really good at math, loved science. So when I went into college, it was just kind of this easy decision. Like, well, engineering would probably fit my personality perfectly. Um, you know, so the, the job going into it, uh, you know, studying, I I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. Uh, you know, I just, I don't know. I love solving math problems. I love that kind of part of engineering. So I went in and got my bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering and straight out of college started working for a company that contracts with NASA. So we worked on, um, part of the space shuttle program. If you are familiar with the old space shuttle, there's a, an orange uh, liquid propellant booster in the middle of, uh, of the space shuttle. And then you've got the two white, which are solid propellant on the sides. And that's what we worked on were the solid propellant, white, long rockets on the sides. And, um, you know, there were interesting days where I got to, like, for instance, we would shoot ice pellets at different materials to see if things would break off and if they did, how big they were. Uh, you know, so things like that, that was exciting, uh, on launch days, we got to, you know, we would sit around a room and we would have people and, and I'd be remote. So I'd be in Salt Lake city, but we'd have people walking around and letting us know, Oh, it looks like there's a little piece of material missing. It's about this size. Is that going to be an issue? And so we would do a quick calculation and okay, it's going to be okay. Uh, so it was interesting. It was fun. But at the end of the day, as I learned more and more about nutrition, and the benefits of a plant-based diet, I started noticing that at work, I was, you know, I was doing my job, but then I would come home and I would be excited about digging into the research again and looking more about nutrition. And I started talking to my family and my friends about it because I was noticing benefits for myself. I was noticing that I was, you know, getting leaner and feeling healthy. And then I was making it to where my family members were 
getting healthier and feeling better. And that just was really exciting to me because not only were we helping people's health get better, but at the same time, like I had been vegan for a very long time too. And, you know, so as people are changing and and going plant-based for their health, I was noticing, okay, well, these same people are helping the animals and helping the environment by changing their diet to going plant-based. So that was exciting. And, and it just got to the point where I was so passionate about it, so excited about it, that I just felt like I need to have my career, my day-to-day match this passion that I have. So one day I decided to leave my career and uh, as a mechanical engineer. And it was not an easy decision, but it was something that I was from the moment I made that decision, I was just thrilled. I was excited. Uh, there was no regret at all. And, uh, you know, I had to give up this, this career that I had created, go back and become a starving student again, apply for medical school. I was the oldest person applying for my, you know, that was in my medical school class. And, uh, but from the second that I started, I absolutely loved it. It was a lot of hard work, but I felt like this is what I'm meant to do. This is this is what gets me up in the morning. And the fact that I can help the animals, help the planet and help people at the same time, it was just like the trifecta, it's, it was amazing. So, uh, so went into medical school, but right when I started, I already knew that I was interested in plant-based nutrition. And so it was interesting to go through and get this conventional medical school education, this conventional family medicine residency education, but having that lifestyle medicine component, that plant-based nutrition component kind of running through it and being able to show it to patients and even some of my supervising physicians, sharing the information with them and trying to do what I could while in training. Um, But then after I graduated in 2020 from residency, I became board certified in both family medicine and lifestyle medicine. And then pretty soon after found a telehealth company, it's called plant-based telehealth, where I basically go and, you know, through telemedicine, help patients make the transition to whole food plant-based or am just a supportive plant-based doctor that they, that they can have to where we can, um, you know, tweak their lifestyle and, and really help them, you know, get better, get healthy. So yeah, from the age of 13 to now, it's been a lot of changes, but, uh, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I love it. Yeah. That's so awesome. What would you say is kind of your definition of lifestyle medicine and how do you kind of work with patients to get them to a place of health? So lifestyle medicine is, it's a little bit newer. It's a specialty that you can become board certified in now. So in addition to, you know, someone being board certified in say family medicine or emergency medicine, um, internal medicine, you can become board certified in lifestyle medicine. And really what lifestyle medicine aims to do is help people make lifestyle changes to improve their health. So for instance, a conventional doctor, if you go to a conventional doctor, they might check, say, your cholesterol. Say, you know, your cholesterol is a little bit high based on your age, based on your cholesterol numbers, based on your blood pressure. I think it makes sense to start you on a medication for that. Whereas a lifestyle medicine doctor might see those same numbers and say, okay, we, we really need to improve your lifestyle so that we can improve those numbers and decrease your risk of having some sort of cardiovascular event like a stroke or a heart attack. Um, now, do we still use some medications as lifestyle medicine doctors? When we need to, yes, but that is not our, our first initial plan. Uh, ultimately, what we want to do is get your lifestyle your health in the best place that you can just by making lifestyle changes. And then if we need to, those medications are still there. I mean, people still, you're going to have an infection that might require an antibiotic, right? There are still things that we need to do. Um, But I would say that really for me, the big difference between say conventional medicine and lifestyle medicine is that conventional medicine really is based around finding a diagnosis and then treating that diagnosis with 
usually medications or surgeries, whereas lifestyle medicine is let's get to the root of your issues. The chronic diseases that you have, there is something underlying that that we need to get at. Let's help you through that process of improving your lifestyle. And you might not even need any of these medications. And so a lot of what I do is deprescribe medications. As people get healthy, we peel away medications because medications can be harmful. Um, you know, there are risks and benefits to a lot of different medications. Um, the other difference between conventional and lifestyle or medicine is that, you know, with lifestyle medicine, uh, you know, it really is kind of the onus is on the patient. You are the one who has to make the major changes. I can help you through that process, but it, it is, it's, it's a major investment in your health that you have to commit to. Whereas conventional medicine is kind of like, well, here's your diagnosis and here's the medication I want you to take for the rest of your life. And taking a pill every day, although it might not be a lot of fun, is, is pretty simple versus having to just uproot your entire lifestyle that you've been used to your en entire life, what maybe what your family is used to and, and having to make that big change. So it really is um, something that people have to commit to and it can be really difficult. And I love helping people through that process. Yeah. I think that's so needed in the world today. And I love seeing that shift from conventional medicine to lifestyle medicine and seeing them kind of coexist uh, more than they have previously. So what kind of, um, what kind of, uh, how receptive have you seen the medical industry, both through uh, your school years and now uh, in practice? How receptive have you seen the whole kind of medical community in terms of uh, kind of lifestyle medicine and what you're trying to accomplish? Great question, because I because I've been through this process. So I started medical school in 2013. And at the time, I would say definitely we were starting to see uh, a movement in, you know, toward the area of lifestyle medicine. But it hasn't been until the last couple of years that I've noticed it's really starting to get traction. And I would say that in the beginning, it was one of those things that I tried to share as much as I could, but people still thought, well, no, a balanced diet should really include, you know, your protein. Got, you got to have your meat, you got to have your dairy, you know, dairy is so important for calcium and, um, you know, to where now I, I do have a lot of people reaching out to me, friends and family reaching out to me about wanting to learn more about a whole food plant-based diet because it's getting more, uh, known. And in fact, I just got, uh, a magazine in the mail. So I get these, um, uh, you know, magazines from different medical um, uh, groups. And one of them that I got just a few days ago uh, was all about lifestyle medicine. And this was a family practice magazine that, uh, you know, goes through all of the current research on family practice, family medicine, and they were sharing lifestyle medicine. And this was exciting because as a family doctor, usually there's you know, you got your family medicine part and the lifestyle medicine part, but it's kind of hard to see where they connect. And so it was really exciting to see that, you know, now they're publishing information about lifestyle medicine. And I want to make sure that you understand. So lifestyle medicine, it has six pillars. And, you know, one of the first pillars is a, a whole food plant-based diet. So that's just automatic as lifestyle medicine. We know through abundant research that the best human diet out there is a whole food plant-based diet. So that's number one. And then in addition to that, there are other lifestyle factors. Physical activity is important. Now we don't call it exercise because waking up at five o'clock in the morning and just, just focusing on a little bit of exercise. And then the rest of the day you're sitting around isn't necessarily the healthiest way to go about it. Physical activity is being active throughout your life not just at you know, one point during the day, but throughout your entire day, you've got to figure out ways to, to increase your activity. Uh, we talk about stress management, uh, quality and quantity of sleep, um, staying away from harmful substances like tobacco and, and even alcohol. 
Um, you know, staying socially connected with people, uh, you know, emotional wellness. So that so many aspects of lifestyle medicine and yes, whole food plant-based diet is definitely a, a really important part of lifestyle medicine, but there are also a lot of factors that you need to take into account for your best health. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. It always blows my mind to see doctors who will just jump right to like, okay, what band-aid can we just put on to the problem you're dealing with? It's like, okay, you're feeling this way. Let's give you a pill. And it's like, they're not actually looking into how someone is truly living, uh, not just nutrition, as you touched on, but how is their, how are their stress levels? How is their um, activity or movements throughout the day? How is, how is their sleep? That's an incredible one. Um, and just seeing kind of patience uh, in that more kind of comprehensive light, I think is so incredibly important to actually cultivating true health and not just trying to treat some uh, symptoms. So yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's really important as you, as you've kind of gone through this process, have you been seeing um, some of these conventional uh uh, doctors and stuff? Have you seen other people making the shift as well? Or do you feel like there's just a movement of other lifestyle doctors that are um, coming in, lifestyle medicine doctors who are coming in and leading that front? Well, I am now seeing more uh, pro healthcare providers learning about this because it's becoming more known that they're starting to, because it's really simple once you hear about it, as a healthcare provider, we are taught to look into the research, what's been done, being able to evaluate, uh, you know, studies and, and being able to see, is this legitimate or not? And so what's great about it is that because we have such solid evidence, people who might become a little bit interested in it, wow, somebody reversed their diabetes with just change in their diet. Okay. I need to look into this more. So we are seeing a lot of healthcare providers who then go in and do their own research and find, wow, okay, this really is, there is something to this. And unfortunately we just don't get that education in medical school or in residency uh, until now we're starting to see it because now we're starting to have where there are residency programs who are learning lifestyle medicine. There are physicians and other healthcare providers who are getting into the medical schools, like um, Dr. Michael Clapper, he's part of our practice at Plant-Based Telehealth, and he's starting to introduce education into medical schools around the country. So we are start starting to try to incorporate lifestyle medicine into uh, education for healthcare providers, because ultimately that's, that's where we can make a big difference right? Because people come to their doctors, they trust their doctors. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard patients coming to me saying, why didn't my doctor mention that I could just change my diet? You know, 10 years ago, when I was looking for answers, why didn't they tell me about it? And even now they will talk to their local doctor about making these changes and they'll say, oh, you know, good for you. Yeah. Just, you know, let me know how it goes, but not really supportive. Um, but I am seeing more and more that there are more healthcare providers interested and making changes themselves to starting to live their life this way and changing to a whole food plant-based diet. So it is something that I'm starting to see gain a lot of traction. That's that's wonderful to hear. So I think that's um that's definitely what we need to be seeing in the medical industry and I just feel like there's been so much um like with uh, big pharma and all these other um, kind of uh, groups that are pushing conventional medicine and continuing to further that, it's really amazing to see um, light in uh, in that uh, kind of in that change. So, what um, what is your definition of a whole food plant based diet? Yeah, so a whole food plant based diet, you know, you can think of it a couple of different ways. I, I don't like to think of it as a restrictive diet because although it lacks, you know, we remove some things from it. So we remove animal products, any animal product. So meat, dairy, eggs, um, we, and oil. So we consider that to not be a whole food, but although we're removing those things, it's so important 
important to focus on what you are eating. What do you have in front of you that you can enjoy? Because I will tell you, I've been eating this way for a very long time and I do not miss my old way of eating at all. I do not feel like I am restricted. And in fact, I just feel like I'm just excited. Oh, there's a new recipe I get to try. And, but a whole food plant-based diet is like, like I, I said, it's whole foods and it's plants. So meaning grain, whole grains, uh, starchy vegetables, like potatoes, legumes, beans, um, corn, rice, non-starchy vegetables, you know, your broccoli and carrots and tomatoes and leafy greens, and then fruits, and then a few nuts and seeds. And that's really a whole food plant-based diet is it's all the plants that are available to eat. And if you can, mostly in their whole form, minimally processed. And that's why we say whole food, because you can be eating all plants, but if they're really processed, you're losing some of that benefit. And so when I say processed, you know, I mentioned oil, that's a processed plant food where you strip the fat from a whole food and use that. Um, but also, you know, I mean, things like, you know, something that's made out of plants completely is an Oreo, right? It, there are no animal products in an Oreo at all. It's all completely made of plants, but that is not a whole food. So really focusing on as much as you can of the whole plant foods. Yeah, I think that's really important. And that's also what I recommend to all of our clients and our audience. What uh, processing is definitely a continuum. It's not just a black and white thing. So I totally agree. Oreos aren't the epitome of health. But um, but what is your take on kind of balancing having an Oreo or whatever those other kind of treats are on occasion with uh, focusing on um, a whole food plant-based diet? You know, the great thing about being alive today is that there's so much information out. There's so many people who have shared information about how to enjoy this lifestyle of eating whole food plant-based and not having to, uh, you know, have those processed things. So for instance, there are so many cookbooks out there now that are whole food plant-based and even salt, oil, and sugar-free, where you can make cupcakes and cookies and sweet things that are made from whole foods. And so, yeah, maybe minimally processed because, you know, you might be using some things that you might have to grind, but it's very minimally processed. Like you said, it is, it's a spectrum, right? You have the Twinkie on one end and then the carrot on the other end. And, you know, so even over here where you are more whole food plant-based, you are, you know, just below that might be like a smoothie, right? You are blending up that food. So you are processing a little bit, but it's so much better than being over here where you've got things that are being made in a lab. But, you know, basically from, you know, you, you do, you have to look at it as a spectrum and just doing what you can to stay on this end of the spectrum as much as you possibly can. And knowing that if you have, you know, a special occasion, there are things that you can make that you can buy that are going to keep you closer to this side. So that's, that's what I would recommend is just do your best to stay as close to the whole food plant-based as you can. Um, but it doesn't mean that you need to be having leafy greens and broccoli at every single meal, right? You want to be able to enjoy this way of eating. And what is so important is keeping it sustainable so that you can keep this way of eating for the, for the rest of your life. That's what's so important because if it's something that you're not enjoying and that you can't sustain, you're going to go back to your old way of eating. And that's, and it's so much better to be, you know, 80% there than to not do it at all. So doing your best and being patient with yourself uh, and just striving to do the best, but just knowing that whatever it is that you need to do to continue to, to eat that way for life, you know, it just, it's so important to make it sustainable for you. Yeah, 
I totally agree. I think sustainability is the absolute most important part of a nutrition program, of a fitness program, uh, movement program, whatever you want to call that. I think the sustainable part is is really the key to success. And I think that's a little different for everyone based on your goals and your schedule and um, kind of your uh, preferences for different foods. But I think that's really what everyone should be focused on. So when you were talked a little bit about, um, being salt, oil, and sugar free, is that, uh, something that you recommend to all of your clients? Is that something that you practice yourself? So I would say that for some people, it works really well for them because, um, they might have, uh, issues with sugar where it causes them, you know, where they have, uh, a craving for something with sugar in it. And once they have one thing, they just can't stop. So for people who might have like, you know, a background of food addictions, um, disordered eating, it might make sense for them to, to remove salt and sugar as well as oil. For me, uh, my personal diet and what I recommend to my patients is a whole food plant-based diet free of oil. So that is my main recommendation. I do, I do see that for some people in order to keep on this way of eating, that they need a little bit of salt, say over their food or a little bit of sugar in their diet. And as long as you're able to contain it to just having it on the rare occasions and not having it too much, I think it can be part of a healthy diet. Uh, you know, so it really is kind of personal preference and, and also it kind of depends on, you know, what you have going on health wise. So for instance, if I have someone who, you know, has really difficult to control blood pressure, having a lot of sodium isn't beneficial for them. And so they might need to, you know, cut back on that. Um, you know, the other thing is I have people who have really struggle with weight loss. And we know that if you add salt over your food, you're going to end up just eating more, you're going to take in more calories um, with salt over your food. Um, but Having said that, for, for a lot of people, that as long as you're not adding a lot of salt and sugar to your meals and you're just having a small amount over the top right before you eat it, you're not going to be taking in a lot of extra. And I think that if that is what it takes to keep you eating this way, I am 100% on board for that. I think the most important thing is that you get in all those delicious fruits and veggies, you know, stay away from the high fat oil and ultimately you know, most of the time that is going to be a fabulous diet for most people. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so you talked a lot about kind of oil-free. I agree. Uh, the less oil you have in your diet, the better. Um, what, uh, what are kind of some common misconceptions that you see about like the need for oil in your diet or like this is their healthy fats or something like that? Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So what I will hear from people is, you know, for instance, well, oil has what we call phytonutrients or antioxidants and, um, you know, that, that give you real health benefits. And I agree. Antioxidants are great. If you can get those phytonutrients in the foods, absolutely. But what we don't realize is that those antioxidants aren't coming from the oil, right? They're coming from the original plant food. So, Avocado oil or coconut oil are not these uh, amazing things that just as you strip the oil out of the food, all of a sudden it has all these health benefits in it, right? It, all those health benefits are in the original plant. So in the avocado, um, you know, in the olive. It, but, and the other thing is, is that when you strip out that oil, now all of a sudden you've stripped out, you know, you've removed a lot of the important things that come in that whole plant. So you have actually removed a lot of the benefits. So a lot of those phytonutrients are not going to be in that oil. You're going to have left them behind. You're going to leave behind all that fiber. Um, you know, a lot of the nutrients, a lot of those micronutrients uh, and macronutrients, you're getting rid of all the protein and carbohydrate. You're removing all of that. So when you think about these health benefits of oil, really at the end of the day, it's the health benefits of the original plant food. So if there is any benefit in say an olive, it's so much better to eat that olive than to have the olive oil, because not only is it processed where you have to take, you know, thousands of olives to make this amount of oil, 
um, but you're removing so much of the good stuff from it. So um, that's, I would say, the big biggest misconception is that you know you really you need to have oil because of the the health benefits of oil. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it just makes so much more sense to just have the whole plant food. Yeah, I look at all nutrition as the how much I'm getting per calorie, like how much nutrition am I getting per unit calorie that I am investing into my food for the day. And I think when you look at it through that lens, uh, obviously oil is at the absolute bottom of that list <laughs> and, uh, everything that you said, uh, yeah, there's, you should be going to the actual plant food and not consuming it's uh, kind of processed oil byproduct. So, uh, and, you know, with the, it's interesting because you're talking about like nutrient density, right? The nutrient, how, how much nutrients this food has. And what we find is that the more nutrient dense something is, it's usually more calorie dilute. And then the opposite happens too. So something that's really cal calorically dense, like an oil, you know, 4,000 calories per pound is also pretty nutrient dilute. You're not getting many nutrients in something like that. So it makes so much more sense to eat something that's really high in nutrients because at the end of the day, most of the time, something that's really high in nutrients is also really low in calories. Yeah. Yeah. And I think energy density really plays a huge part in long-term sustainable weight management or weight loss, how whatever your goals are. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how you view energy balance and how that fits into um, kind of a weight loss program? And also, um, if you could talk a little bit to macronutrients and how you view macronutrients, is that something that you kind of uh, bring into uh, the equation as you're working with clients? Yeah. So uh, as far as the energy balance goes, you know, what I talk to people about, because I like to keep things really simple, it doesn't need to be rocket science, <laughs> um, but keeping it really simple where, you know, I don't want people worrying about portion control or how many calories they're taking in and, and writing down the amount of calories that they're having in every single meal and adding it up throughout the day. Because at the end of the day, if you are choosing the right foods, you don't have to worry about that. So I really like to tell people, yeah, you need to be physically active. You need to be expending energy. And then your body does need, a, you know, to take in that glucose to help you make energy. But I don't want you worrying about, um, you know, all, and, and, I, and I love numbers. So I'm right there. You know, I love graphs. I love charts, but keeping it so simple where it's, as long as you're eating the right foods, you don't have to worry about that. You eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, keep it all whole food plant-based, and then you don't have to worry about all that. Um, and then talking about macronutrients. So, you know, we have three macronutrients and I sometimes will say four, but the three, you know, protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And then the fourth one is water. So you've got these macronutrients. So all plants contain these macronutrients. And then you've got the micronutrients, you know, like selenium and zinc and vitamin C and all those things that you also need to get in your diet. Um, but as far as macronutrients go, um, another thing is if, if you are eating all plant foods, you're going to be getting all those macronutrients. And in fact, what we find is that when you are eating mostly plant foods, you're going to end up with, you know, a good amount of carbohydrates, a little bit of fat and a little bit of protein. And you don't really, at the end of the day, need to focus too much on the percentages if you're eating the right foods. If you're not eating the right foods and you start you know, writing down what your day looks like, most Americans are getting not only tons of fat in their diet, but probably too much protein too. Um, unless you're like an endurance athlete or somebody who needs to get extra protein, a lot of people are getting too much protein and, and way too much fat. I mean, if you think about, you know, I would say the average whole food plant eater is probably getting less than 10% of the calories from fat. Whereas most Americans who eat the standard American diet are getting more like 30 to 40% of their daily calories from fat. So it's a huge difference. So when I work with people who are looking at weight loss, it's pretty simple. 
because once they change over to a whole food plant-based diet, automatically that fat percentage comes down where they don't even have to think about it. And that is really helpful for weight loss. Yeah. And like we were touching on earlier, uh, things like oils and other really high fat foods, they're so packed with calories and most people don't understand that. So you add two tablespoons of oil and you don't realize you're a few hundred calories into your dish and you haven't even put anything into the pan. <laughs> so it uh, adds up pretty quickly. Right. And then those same two tablespoons are like a drop in the bucket in your stomach, right? You don't even notice that it's in there. Uh, it's it's not taking up any space. So you're not getting full. Whereas your, your stomach could be completely filled with vegetables, you know, for 500 calories. I mean, so it, it does, it makes a lot of sense because with oil, it's 100% fat, right? 100% of what you're getting is fat. Um, whereas like I mentioned before, if you're eating mostly plant foods, it should be like 10% or less. So you're just adding so many calories for very little benefit. Do you have any tips for cooking oil-free? Like if you're throwing something in a pan and you just want to saute something or just kind of cook something uh, without oil, do you have any tips for people who want to do that? Yeah, you know what works best for me and my family, we uh, so we invested in a, some good nonstick pans. That's probably one of the main things because we like hash browns and we want them to be crispy. And so if you have a good nonstick pan, it works great for that. And it works great for sauteing too. If you need a little bit of that moisture, we just use a little bit of vegetable broth or a little bit of water for the veggies to be able to saute. And it turns out wonderfully. And it's interesting, once you stop having that oil, it's really kind of disgusting. If you go to eat out and you ask, you know, for sauteed vegetables without oil, and then they bring you a plate that's just drenched in oil. It's like, oh, it just, it doesn't taste good anymore. You get to the point where it's really disgusting. Um, but I would say nonstick pans. The other thing I love to do is air fry. So I have um, an air fryer where I'll just cut up potato wedges and make these crispy French fries without any oil at all. Um, so the air fryer and then, um, you know, baking. So you can do, some, you can still do some baking. Uh, applesauce is a great, uh, substitute for oil. So just, you need a little bit of that moisture, but you're not getting all that extra fat. So, um, and, and the great thing is now, nowadays, so many people have come up with excellent, uh, recipe books, uh, you know, recipes all over the internet. You just have to search whole food, plant-based oil-free, and there's tons of stuff out there. It didn't always used to be that way. When I first went vegan, you know, in the nineties, uh, it definitely was not the case. There was, you know, very little help out there for anything really, but it's like nowadays you just have access to all of that. So it's very easy to find things that are not only vegan, not only whole food plant-based, but oil-free as well. Yeah. You've talked about how when you go out to eat and you've, you're eating something that is, uh, made in a restaurant has all this oil and it's kind of like gross. I've noticed the same transition in going from kind of more of a standard American diet to a healthy-ish kind of uh, omnivorous diet to then going plant-based and then vegan. And I've really noticed how my kind of taste profile and taste preferences have changed. Is that something that you experienced? And is that something that you have seen your clients and other people experience? Absolutely. Your, your taste buds uh, adapt. Absolutely. So they adapt to not, you know, not only the, the oil and the salts and the sugars and just the processed food in general, you, um, you might like, so for instance, if someone's eating a standard American diet today and they try a big plate of barley and broccoli, they might say, this is so bland. I'm not enjoying this at all. But then if you give them six weeks of eating that way, slowly, they will start to notice that they are, their taste, they're able to taste things better. They're enjoying the food more. And I'll, um, I'll say that where I really noticed this was when I worked as an, I was interning at the True North Health Center, which is a water only fasting center in California. And we would see people there who would come and do these water only fasts. And at the end of the fast, they would eat a whole food plant-based diet to kind of get themselves back into eating again. And what they would do is when they first arrived at the facility, they would eat the whole food 
plant-based for a couple of days before starting their fast. And a lot of times we would see people who just did not like the food. It was too bland. It, it was not exciting. They did not like it. And then they would go through the fast. And at the end of the fast, it was the best food they could ever imagine. It was just full of flavor. It tasted so good. And so I do see that. And that's where it's so important to be patient with yourself because as you're making this transition in the beginning, your receptors are so focused in on all that salt, sugar, fat, that it's hard for you to really enjoy those subtle tastes of just plants without anything on them. So you have to give yourself some time for your body to adjust to that new way of eating. And I promise you it is worth it. It is the best thing ever to be able to really taste food and not have to have all the extra chemicals on top of the food to be able to enjoy it. Yeah. When I made that shift uh, with my taste profile, I was just I started becoming amazed at the variety of all the different options that you could be consuming and foods that I had never even tried before, uh, vegetables I had never tried before, other plant foods. And it really kind of shifted my perspective on um, on what uh, on like cooking and what uh, foods actually really tasted good. And now. I have cravings for greens and other kind of healthy foods. And I know when my body, if I'm like traveling or doing something where I haven't been like having a big salad or something on a regular basis for uh, two days or something like that, I notice my body just is craving that. And it just, it's, um, it's cool to see that transition happen in your own life. So yeah, what kind of interesting, yeah, it is really cool. So what kind of uh, mistakes do you see vegans make when it comes to their nutrition for weight loss purposes? Uh, I would say, um, you know, one of the things is really if you're too focused on the, the fat in the diet, I'll see that as uh, something that will inhibit weight loss. Uh, if you're getting a lot of high fat foods. So, you know, we've talked about oil a lot, but also just, you know, higher fat plant foods. If you're really relying on a lot of higher fat plant foods, that can add up. So for some people we do, uh, you know, where we do uh, a vegan diet that's whole food plant-based and very low in fat. So we really tried to minimize those higher fat foods. Um, I'm one of those where I don't really like to see people getting any coconut, honestly, um, because of the huge amount of saturated fat in coconut, it's over 90% saturated fat and saturated fat is what we see in animal foods. So it's unfortunate because coconut tastes good. Um, but it really acts just like lard or butter in your arteries. It's just so high in saturated fat and it increases cholesterol. So things like that, that I'll have people try to eliminate, because even if you have just a little bit of coconut milk, you know, to make a curry or coconut cream or something, it just really increases that fat content in your diet. Um, you know, things like avocado, it's, you know, you have to compare, right? So an avocado is a health food, definitely. Now, if you're having it at every single meal, you know, that can inhibit weight loss. Uh, you know, it's a little bit more calorically dense than other plant foods. So just being mindful of that, things like tofu that are going to be higher in fat than other plant foods, um, tofu, again, it's a health food. Uh, we know that it decreases your risk of having breast cancer. Women who eat more tofu have decreased incidence in breast cancer. So we know that it's a health food. But if you're looking specifically for weight loss, as you're getting through that transition and being able to start to lose weight, sometimes keeping your diet really low in fat can be beneficial. And then as you reach your goal, starting to reintroduce some of those higher fat foods um, to see if that's something that you can, that can be sustainable for you. Great. How do you define a healthy body weight? So I usually use a body mass index. So BMI, it looks at your weight and your height and gives you a number. And based on that number, you either fall into underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese. Now, this is a tool, right? It's not perfect. It doesn't work great for people who are really short, people who have a lot of muscle mass, but it is a tool that we can use to kind of look at where you fall. And 
So what I'll tell people is, you know, conventionally, we tell people that a BMI under 25 is considered normal. So somewhere between 19 and about 25 would be a normal body mass index. If you get over 25, between 25 and 30, that is overweight. And then above 30 would be obese. Now, what we do know is that for most people under 25, although that is considered normal, we know that people live longer, have less chronic disease if their BMI follow, falls more within about 19 to 22. So when I'm talking to people about having a goal for a healthy weight, we start there. We start talking about a BMI and ultimately like we start with a goal of under 25, but if we can get you somewhere between 19 and 22, that's great. Now, having said that, your body has an ideal weight, an ideal body weight, right? And we don't know what that is. So as you start losing weight, you're going to get down to a place where you're going to level out and that is going to be your ideal body weight. And that might be a BMI of 19. It might be a BMI of 22. It might actually be a BMI of 25, depending on you know, your stature and things like that. So no one knows for sure what that ideal weight for you specifically is going to be. But we do know that, that we can at least get you to a place where we have a goal that we can start going towards. And then you'll notice that as long as you're eating the right foods, you're doing all those wonderful lifestyle measures like physical activity, getting enough sleep, that your body will settle in to that ideal weight at some point. Yeah. I've, uh, I've always, so I, my BMI right now is overweight. Um, but I'm around 12% body fat. So I fall into the category of, uh, the muscle mass part of that thing that you talked about. So yeah, I, I generally prefer to look at, uh, kind of body fat percentage. I think you can look at it a little bit more holistically and, and kind of consider a few variables, but, um, but I think, uh, BMI for people who don't have a considerable amount of muscle mass, uh, can be a helpful metric. So, so yeah, and I, I agree. It's, it's nice to look at, um, body fat percentages too. And, um, and I have, heard about being able to just really like kind of look at a person and see, um, you know, kind of the bony prominence prominences to, to be able to kind of, uh, figure out where they're falling as far as their body fat percentage. Have you worked with people on that? Um, you said based on their bone structure. Wait, right. So as you can see, like, you know, as bones start to kind of come out, as you have less fat on your body, that that usually equates to a lower um, body fat percentage. Okay, so you're using that as a uh, as a metric for gauging someone's body fat percentage. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In general, uh, I actually I think the simplest way of doing it is actually just googling pictures of people's body fat percentages. Like there are tons of charts that you can find of like male and female body fat percentages, uh, and they're physiques with known body fat percentages so you can look through and be like and compare your physique or your body i i usually use the word physique <laughs> your physique with um with uh another picture that you find online and kind of make an estimate as to what your body fat percentage is so i'd say it's uh probably plus or minus three percent um for your body fat percentage which is a which is a, a range but uh it is still kind of a helpful indicator um, I think, uh, yeah, the kind of the gold standard is a, a DEXA scan. Um, so we have lots of our clients, uh, kind of take DEXA scans and chart their progress using that. And the cool thing about DEXA scans is that it also not only gives you your body fat percentage, but also tells you how much muscle mass you have, how much lean muscle mass. So you can track that over time, which is something that lots of our clients are working to increase. So that kind of gets me to another topic that I wanted to touch on. I know that you were talking about um, kind of a lower protein, lower fat uh, intake. Um, that's kind of where I first started my fitness journey is kind of following the 80-10-10 uh, approach. I'm not sure if it's if that's really so, um, so widely uh, followed anymore, but back like uh, I guess that would be about six years ago when I was really getting into it. Uh, that was kind of the whole food plant-based kind of approach to follow. And I know that you said that you don't 
focus on macro percentages. So, um, but uh, something kind of along those lines. Um, and I found that I was uh, really, I felt really healthy, but I was really struggling to accomplish my uh, muscle and strength building goals. So is that, um, is that something that you've done any research into in regards to like increasing protein content, uh, protein intake for uh, more like uh, fitness based goals? Well, absolutely. We know that people who are, you know, either strength athletes or endurance athletes, um, people who are into fitness do require more protein, uh, you know, usually at least double the amount of someone who isn't. Uh, so absolutely. I think that that's something that if you are, you know, someone who is looking to make strength goals and increase your strength and increase your endurance that you have to look into that a little bit more. So um, that is something that I do have some patients that we talk a little bit more about the macronutrients because of that. Okay, cool. Uh, so what foods do you recommend that all vegans have in their diet? Or I guess you could also, we can throw supplements in there as well. So what kind of foods or slash supplements do you really recommend that vegans are consuming? So I would say my top ones that I will talk to people about are starches, first of all. So complex carbohydrates, and that is whole foods. So whole grains, beans, uh, you know, legumes, um, potatoes, sweet potatoes, corn. So you've got to have those starchy foods because that's really what keeps you satiated throughout the day. That's what really keeps you, you know, kind of going. And it's that comfort food. Uh, you know, it's this, it's long chains of glucose that break down slowly over time. So it helps keep you fuller longer. In addition to that leafy greens. So leafy greens, very nutrient dense, very calorie dilute gets you so much nutrition. And so I tell people, whatever you can do to get as many leafy greens in throughout the day, the better. Uh, and then berries, making sure that you're getting berries every single day. So I would say that if I'm talking about kind of my top things, those would be the top three. And then as far as supplements go, uh, I always recommend for anyone who's vegan to take a B12 supplement. Absolutely. Uh, it seems that the research is pointing towards cyanocobalamin as a better form for absorption. There's methyl and then the cyanocobalamin. So I recommend that. And then uh, I'll tell people 500 micrograms per day or maybe 2,500 per week. I usually like it if people can get either a liquid or uh, a sublingual or chewable version of it. So that let's say it's a chewable one. You don't chew it. You just let it dissolve in your mouth because the more you can let it dissolve in your mucous membranes, instead of having to go through your gut, the better you're going to absorb better. So that would be for the B12. And then as far as other supplements, I really, I, I like to minimize other supplements unless people have a deficiency. We do see a lot of deficiencies in vitamin D. So that's something that we can check. We can just order a lab and see where your vitamin D level is. The best place is for your body to make vitamin D based on sunshine. So that would be the best. But if you are someone who just doesn't get a lot of sunshine, you might have to take a supplement. And then sometimes people can be low in essential fatty acids like the omega-3s. So that's something that you can also check with the lab to see where you fall out. And a lot of people will think like, well, okay, omega-3s, that's, you know, fish. Well, no, you don't need to get it from fish because fish get it from plants. So you might as well get it from plants. Um, some good sources are nuts and seeds, walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds. You really only need one to two tablespoons of ground flax every day to get your daily level of omegas. But another really good place to get omegas is leafy greens. So another reason to just get lots of leafy greens into your diet throughout the day. Do you think that it's important to have preformed EPA and DHA in your diet uh, through an algae oil supplement? Or do you feel like that's really something that you should be testing for prior to uh, including in your diet? Yeah, so I, I personally would not recommend taking a, a supplement unless it's something that you need and you can't, for, some, for whatever reason, you can't get through your diet. If you have difficulty with absorption, you've tried getting it through your diet and you just can't then, then looking at supplementing, but 
any, any way that you can get the nutrients that you need through the plant food is the best. Okay. Where do you see the uh, future of telehealth going? Um, and maybe specifically plant-based, but just kind of telehealth uh, in general as well. Well, I do see it as a benefit for people because of access, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like going to the doctor's office because I have to block out several hours in my day. I have to drive there and then I have to wait and then I have to wait some more. The doctor runs in, runs out. They're always in a hurry because they got to go see the next person. And then you wait some more after you're done with your doctor right? It's, it's a big process. Whereas telehealth, it allows us to be in our pajamas at home. We don't have to drive somewhere. And what, if your appointment starts at 9am, your appointment actually starts at 9am. You start talking to your, to your provider at that time. So you save a lot of time. And, you know, the other nice thing about telehealth is, is they get to see you in your home environment. You can, I mean, I've had where patients show me, you know, what does their pantry look like? What does their fridge look like? Uh, you know, so it's, it's just nice to be able to kind of see people where they are. And I feel like it also makes people more comfortable. They feel like they're in their home environment. They're comfortable there. And you're inviting me in um, instead of you having to come to me and be part of my busy schedule. I get to come to you and we get to have a nice experience. Um, you know, I do feel like it's one silver lining of the pandemic that we've been going through is that we just had to rely on some telehealth and some telemedicine. And people, I think, are starting to see that this is a good alternative to going to someone in person is that you can see someone very easily, very quickly online, virtually, and, and get some benefits from that and not have to worry about you know, dealing with all of the other things that go into seeing someone in person. Um, so that is something that's, I think, nice that we are getting to access people who live rurally, who don't even live near any doctor at all, right? As long as you've got an internet connection, we can see you. So, um, so there are a lot of benefits, definitely. Awesome. Yeah, that actually wasn't a consideration that I had been thinking of when we were talking about, oh, I can see in your pantry or see stuff like that. That's a really useful tool. Um, I think from my perspective, uh, given my experience with doctors, the biggest benefit to telehealth is being able to see specifically doctors who align with your beliefs when it comes to nutrition uh, or uh, even ethics, if you're uh, kind of talking about veganism. And I think that's incredibly important. And uh, those doctors are not as readily available as uh, as kind of conventional medicine doctors. So I think that's just a really cool channel. And I agree that is uh, certainly a silver lining from uh, the whole pandemic. So I know that you have uh, children. Um, and could you Tell us a little bit about uh, being vegan as a family and um, kind of how do you talk with your kids about veganism and how how is that kind of uh, how have you seen that uh, transpire? Yeah, for me, uh, I'm lucky. My son, he just turned nine um, and he has been vegan since birth. So uh, I didn't luckily have to go through the the transition of him eating more standard and the way that most kids eat these days to having to switch over to a vegan diet. So it's just what he's always known. And I have to say, it's never been a struggle. He eats lots of food. He eats what I give him. Um, he rarely complains about what I give him. He eats what we eat and he always has. I mean, even when he was little and just starting to eat, we just gave him what we were eating and he did great. So it's something that is definitely possible for kids to be able to, to do is to eat vegan. Um, it might be a little bit difficult in the beginning if you're looking to transition your entire family from a standard diet to a vegan diet, but it's not impossible. And in fact, I'll hear people a lot of times because I'm a family medicine doctor, I see kiddos and I'll have parents will say, you know, my kid, he's really picky. Um, this is all, you know, he'll only eat chicken nuggets. Like that is all this kid will eat. He won't eat any vegetable. He won't touch them. Well, at the end of the day, you, you are the parent, you get to give them 
the food that they're going to eat. And if you give them chicken nuggets, that's what they're going to eat, right? Um, whereas if you give them a plate of barley and sweet potatoes, they might be, you know, they might push it aside and not eat it that night. But ultimately, if you keep doing it and you're consistent with it, they're not going to starve themselves. They are going to eat. And just like you, they have to also transition those taste buds and, and start, you know, changing their relationship with their food that it isn't just this bomb of, you know, salt and sugar and fat, that it is a whole, whole plant foods and that they can taste just as good, if not better. Um, so being really patient with your kids, I think is really important. Um, I have to say that for my family, it, it isn't a struggle at all. It's second nature. Now it's really easy. Um, you know, we, we cook together, we enjoy the same foods. Um, and, and it's, it's really at this point, it really is simple for us. And I think that for most people, it's daunting in the beginning, but at some point, once you've done it long enough, it is something that becomes more second nature is much easier. Do you have conversations with your children about kind of the ethical side of veganism? Is that something that they kind of um, feel like, do you feel like they kind of align with that or, or what, uh, how do you have those conversations? Yeah. So we, um, you know, we buy, like they have, there are vegan books out there that talk about veganism and they talk about it in kind of kid language where you can start to understand why, because ultimately at the end of the day, I did not go plant-based for health. Initially, I, you know, when I was 13, I started removing animal products because I didn't think they were healthy, but the reason I went vegan was because of the animals and because of our planet. And that is an important aspect of being plant-based and being vegan is thinking about it, not just about yourself and how it affects you, but thinking about how your diet affects the living beings on this planet and just the earth in general. So we do talk to him about that, what it means to be plant-based, what it means to be vegan. And so he's aware of that. And he actually will share that information with other kids that he knows. Um, you know, he talks to other kids about why he's vegan. And sometimes he struggles where he will come to me and say, you know, it was really unfair because this kid was eating this today and I couldn't have it. And so we remind him, we talk to him about, well, okay, so you could have that. You could choose to have that, but let's talk about why you might choose not to have that, right? Because it isn't about what you can or can't eat. It's about making that choice based on other factors. So we really try to instill in him why we have chosen to eat this way. And it isn't just about the health. Of course, that's a huge benefit, but about all the other things involved in eating this way. I mean, what a great benefit being able to eat a diet that is good for animals, good for the planet. And then just by the way, fantastic for your own health right? That's, that's just, that's the best. I, I just love it. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Like I went vegan for my health. And uh, then I watched the documentary Earthlings. And I realized my eyes were just open. I realized the ethical implications of our lifestyle choices, not just for the foods that we decide to eat, but also um, kind of what we decide to wear or what products we decide to use. And that really uh, shifted my perspective on just life in general, what it means to be um, a member of the human race, what it means to be an earthling on this planet and kind of contribute to um, to others and to just live kind of a more compassionate life. So I think that's really one of the greatest gifts that you could ever give your child is um, kind of that perspective. And um, I intend to do the same for my kids one day, and I think that's uh, just really incredible. So, um, Dr. Davis, really appreciate your time today. This has been super, uh, super inspiring interview. I love hearing from doctors who understand plant-based nutrition, who align with um, our vegan beliefs, and it just gives me a lot of um, of. Uh, confidence moving forward that we um, are kind of building the movement in uh, in the medical community. I think that's just incredibly important. So how can people connect with you? So they can go to my website, drnikkidavis.com. It's D-R-N-I-K-I-D-A-V-I-S.com. 
if you want to try to book an appointment, I am currently licensed in eight states and you can go to plantbasedtelehealth.com to go see which states I'm licensed in. I'm adding more all the time. Um, but if you are in one of those states, you can book an appointment with me via telehealth. And on uh, social media, I'm at Nikki Davis MD. So N-I-K-I-D-A-V-I-S-M-D. Awesome. All right. I'm sure everyone really appreciated hearing your insights um, and uh, really appreciate this interview. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. To take the next step in your vegan fitness journey and get access to all our best content for free, check out theveganjim.com. We'll teach you everything you need to know to torch body fat, break through plateaus, build lean vegan muscle, and supercharge your health. Get started right now at theveganjim.com. Until next time, peace, love, and gains.